Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing very well today, Tim. How are you, sir? I am doing great. We are recording this on a Monday morning, this intro. Lance, this interview we recorded last Friday on April 9th with Eric Carter Landine of the podcast True Consequences. And I'm I'm dating this because I feel like it is a little bit time sensitive. We are releasing this on April 14th um, because 10 Days of Jacob uh, sort of just ended. This is kind of a, a story that's been breaking over true crime social media, I feel like, over the past few weeks. And we're finally catching up and introducing this to our audience. Right. This is one of the hardest conversations that um, we've ever had. It's a really tragic, tragic, tragic story of uh, Jacob Landine, Eric's brother, who was murdered at nine months old. And Eric does not pull any punches when he's telling the story about his brother, who officially died of a subdural hematoma. The cause of that most likely was from a blunt force trauma impact to his head. He was the victim of abuse by Jacob and Eric's mother's boyfriend, and that abuse continued on even after Jacob's death, and you'll learn from Eric these heart-wrenching details. Absolutely, and Eric has been an incredible advocate, and I find it really interesting that he's been doing the podcast True Consequences for a while before he ever covered Jacob's case and his, his brother's story. Okay, so nothing else to say really in this intro, I guess, Lance, to set up the interview. Check out True Consequences, the podcast. Follow Eric on social media. There are links in the show notes. And go to trueconsequences.com for more information about Eric and his brother and Eric's mission. And there's an article that he wrote titled, My Mom's Boyfriend Killed My Brother and Got Away With It. Really well-written article, gives you all the details, the, the heartbreaking details. And definitely check out his show, True Consequences. Thanks a lot for listening. Follow us on Twitter at CrawlSpacePod. And make sure you check out all of our fine shows and all of the upcoming new shows on our website, CrawlSpace-Media.com. being joined now by Eric Carter-Landeen. Eric, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? We're doing awesome. Um, what, a, what a great way to end the week. It's Friday. We're recording this episode. It's like the end of the day on Friday-ish. You know, probably got a couple more things to take care of, but this is a, a really cool way to end the, the week for us, and we know how busy you are, so we truly appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Yeah, you are definitely busy. Uh, as Lance referenced, we uh, had a had a meeting scheduled or sort of just a kind of like a meet and greet kind of thing uh, scheduled. And it was so busy for you on social media that day that we I didn't even like follow up when when you you didn't come to the meeting because there was no emailed uh, link. But I thought it was like, oh, well, uh, he's talked to the DA, so he must just be crazy busy that day. But for the record, you did talk to the DA that day. I did, yeah. Can't talk about what was said, but definitely had a conversation. Okay, so a lot going on. So mm -hmm. uh, now let's back up a little bit. You host a podcast called True Consequences, which you've been doing for a while now covering cases from the southwest yeah mostly in new mexico which is where i live you're personally connected to 
this uh your your mission i mean this isn't something like tim and i don't have a personal connection to missing people or anyone who's suffered at the hands of anyone else uh significantly but you do and this mm-hmm. is hugely personal for you but you've been doing this podcast and covering other cases uh before and correct me if i'm wrong before you ever introduced uh that this that this was a reality of, of your uh, your work and your life too about Jacob. Yeah, it was um, the podcast was started because of Jacob, because of what happened to my family. I grew up here in New Mexico. There have been a lot of challenges with the justice system here, and I kept telling people around me like, somebody should do something, somebody should say something. Um, you know, I was watching all of these horrible cases coming through similar to Jacob's where children were being abused and, and eventually murdered. And then the, the people responsible, if they face any kind of consequences, it's usually not what I would deem to be just. And so uh, the more this happened, the more I kept saying somebody should do something about this and nobody was doing anything about it. Nobody was saying anything about it. And so finally I was like, well, I guess I should do something I should say something. And so I started the podcast to really just make make the public aware of a lot of the issues that we face here. Part of it is to advocate for for victims and their families. Some of it is to create awareness, you know, about potential legislation needs that are here in the state. But really, I just wanted to create this platform to give people a voice who don't really have a voice. Um, I think we know that traditional media can only go so far, and they're only willing to talk to you uh, when you have anything new to say. And sometimes families need to be able to tell their stories. So I didn't start off with Jacob's story for a couple of reasons. Um, The main one is I didn't really want to. I didn't really want to talk about it. Uh, it, it is very, it's a very difficult story. It's very painful to talk about. And anytime I ever disclosed what happened to my brother, what happened to my mom, to people I knew, the reaction was very visceral, which rightfully so. Uh, but that that can also be kind of off-putting, you know, and, and make me not want to talk about it. And then I also wanted to make sure that I had an audience that was significant enough Um, when I told the story that it would make an impact on his case. So when I eventually got over it and and honestly, people like Sarah Turney and and Amanda, Amanda, who's fighting for justice for DJ. Surely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those people, they really inspired me and and gave me the strength to tell Jacob's story and to tell my story. It's a really uh, strong, it's really strong of you to do that. What would the alternative be for you if it wasn't going to be podcasting? Because podcasting became this thing where you can have a voice for other people, for your brother and and your family. And and you can, you know, you've got wonderful equipment that I'm looking at right now, but you don't need that. You know, you could do that on your phone and you can get the word out there. What would the what would the alternative have been? Can you have you ever thought that? Like, how else would you have done something like this? Well, it certainly wouldn't have been YouTube because I don't like being on camera, but um, I've gotten over that a little bit as I've done some live streams and and gotten used to that. I, I don't know what the alternative would have been because we've done so much, you know, for Jacob's case, everything that we've done for the last 34 years really 
until recently hasn't amounted to much. And so I don't know if there was an alternative for me, you know, maybe I could have written a book, maybe I could have, uh, you know, reached out to some big national true crime people and try to get my story out that way. But I, I didn't want to just focus on Jacob. I wanted to to really help others as well, because I, I know what it's like to be ignored. I know what it's like to feel like you're forgotten. And, you know, my brother, I feel like my brother's been forgotten. And I, I don't really want anybody to ever have to feel like that. So podcasting, people have always told me that I have a good voice for radio. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's just what I've heard before. So I was like, well, that kind of makes sense. I like podcasts and I'm into weird stuff. You know, I like true crime. I like paranormal stuff. I like strange things. So I could marry that kind of passion I have, I guess, to seek justice with what I'm told is a good voice. And uh, yeah, it's a good, it's a good voice. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm actually, I'm a little jealous. I might, I might uh, digitally enhance my voice to sound better than yours just so, because you're not allowed to come on the show and have a better (laughs) voice or equipment. So this is already a problem. <laughs> we'll digitally enhance it. We'll work on that. We'll develop the software to uh <laughs> to make that first. Give me a little more bass resonance. <laughs> Just auto-tune. <laughs> well, uh yeah, your your mission is really impressive. So I I I want to say uh congrats on the podcast and congrats on your advocacy effort and congrats on this um 10 days of Jacob. Uh, social media push that you began uh, last week, and we're we're recording this April 9th on a Friday. Um, but th- that didn't make it to ten days, did it? Yeah, uh, I was joking with my mom that you know we planned on ten days of pressure put on the DA, and he made it five days before he he g- gave in. Which I, I guess the pressure must have been pretty significant. Um, yeah, I did tell him that I asked everybody to stop. Uh, calling and emailing, but I don't, I don't know that they have. So I I felt a little bit bad about that, but also, you know, being ignored for 34 years, I maybe kind of enjoyed that a little bit too. (laughs) What a cool message to send. Um, It's an amazing job that you did. And there are a lot of people out there who are probably in a similar situation as yourself. And they're wondering, how do I do this pressure? What, what is this pressure that, people talk about all the time. How do I influence these people who can be policy changers? When did that thought cross your mind? And when did you realize that you could do something about it and what to do? It's been a bit of a journey. It wasn't something that just just happened. And I was pretty resistant to doing something like that for a long time because I didn't want to alienate my family from the DA. I didn't want to make it more difficult for us to have an interaction. But I started off asking the attorney general to open the case because the DAs in Socorro County have really not wanted to touch this case since 1987. So that was the first step. I did a petition. I got some traction there. I did get a response from the attorney general, which was basically, I can't do anything because I don't have jurisdiction. Uh, but I do think that he looked at everything. He said, I do think that you have a case here that that can be prosecuted, that can be provable, and that can be won. 
So he emailed the DA and said, Hey, I think you should take this up and I'm willing to help you however I can, if you need me to send prosecutors, whatever. So that kind of evolved. And I was really just trying to give the DA the time to look at everything. So in September is when the email went out, I hadn't heard anything. And so then I switched the petition to be directed at the DA and because of things like um, appearances on Kendall Ray and, and um, appearances on voices for justice podcast and, and all the other stuff I've been doing, the following just suddenly exploded. And so I, I thought, well, this could be, this could be the time now that there are thousands and thousands of people that know Jacob's story to really start to put that pressure on. And um, I'm not going to lie. I was very nervous about that. You know, I, I, I had a whole bunch of anxiety and you know, my stomach was in knots and everything, but I just felt like it was the, it was the right time. I mean, September to, to April, it's a, a long time. And plus tomorrow is the 34th anniversary of Jacob's death. So the 10 days of Jacob were set to coincide with that, to really send a, a message to the DA. And I, I, it worked, you know, I'm, I'm glad it worked, but it, it was still scary. Wow. Yeah. Well, well done on on everything, um, advocacy wise, uh, getting attention. I'm curious before we talk a little bit more about Jacob and uh, and the tragedy, um, how, how did you get in touch with Sarah and Kendall, and how did you really get their attention? So, uh, Sarah, I messaged her, and <laughs> I did that whole like creepy fan email thing where you're just like, <laughs> hi. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Please don't hate me for emailing you. Um, but I, I, I told her that, you know, I really admired her and I felt like she was a huge inspiration to me. And she gave me the courage to talk about my brother's story. And then I had her on my show to tell Alyssa's story. Uh, it's been about a year and a half since that happened. And, and we kind of developed a friendship, you know, through these interactions. We talk pretty regularly now. And she, she t kept telling me that she wanted to have me on to tell Jacob's story. And you know, because she was going through Alyssa's case, there really wasn't a good time until recently when she started doing other cases. Um, Kendall Ray is, I'm just really lucky that I have some friends on my side that are willing to harass people. Um, even though I'm not because it makes me uncomfortable. And so one of my friends, Fern, who is another podcaster, um, I guess Kendall Ray had followed her on Twitter. And so she messaged Kendall Ray right away and was like, Hey, you should do this case. And uh, that kind of started the ball rolling there. And now Kendall and I are, you know, we're connected and we talk now and it's pretty cool. It was, it was almost like a, a happy accident with, with Kendall Ray and um, with Sarah. But I, I just think that even if it is scary, you know, asking people for help is, is the best way to get people to help you. <laughs> it's like stupid, but that's, best I can come up with. No, no, it's it's great. And again, I, I always think about the people that might be in your shoes and thinking to themselves, like, how do I do this? Uh, what What is your background? Because um, you obviously, podcasting is relatively new in the sense of <laughs> industries. What is your background and, and how, how difficult was that to make a transition? So uh, I'm an MBA I, uh, I've been in operations management for a long time. I'm not going to age myself, um, but decades. 
<laughs> mostly in, in retail and food service and hospitality. I have done event planning, event sales. So I've just done a lot of, of business focused stuff, you know, and podcasting was, was difficult because the learning curve was really steep for me. I had never recorded audio. I didn't know the first thing about it. I didn't know how to edit. I didn't know any of that stuff. And so um, learning all of that was really challenging. Learning how to to research these cases, that was tough as well. Really finding my voice. It took me a good season, I think, before I finally got into the groove of of my cadence and, and how things were going to go. I, I do love it. You know, my, my first season, if you don't like cringy audio, then don't listen to it because it's terrible. <laughs> but uh, I feel like I'm getting better slowly. It's it's uh, great advice. I don't, I don't even know if you realize that you just gave great advice, but it's great advice to say how difficult it is because it is difficult. It is. Uh, Tim and I have the luxury of having each other to bounce things off of uh, doing a, a show solo. The first thing you have to overcome beyond the equipment is like, who the hell am I talking to? I have to act like I'm talking to somebody. I mean, even when we first started ours, I was like, I feel super weird. There's no one in front of me. <laughs> and, it, you know, it, it's something that you never think about until you put the microphone up and you're like, now what? <laughs> yeah, I've had people in the beginning, in the early episodes that I would basically force to sit down and listen to me tell these stories because it just made it feel less awkward for me. And eventually I got comfortable in front of the mic by myself, but it took me it took me a little bit. Yeah, I think it's important to know that it's not something that you can just like, it seems easy, I'm sure. I mean, it seemed easy to me when I first started. And then, you know, my first editing was horrible. It was so choppy and um, I didn't know what I was doing. So I think just be prepared for a long, if you're if you're looking to podcast, be prepared for a long learning curve, um, unless you're like a, a genius or you already know audio, um, <laughs> you know, whatever the word is, I can't think right now, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but even then, it's still it's still got to be a labor of love to keep going, um, you know, because it's not a windfall of cash like uh, like some people might think. <laughs> whoa, whoa! Speak for yourself. <laughs> I know. So, tell us a little bit about your brother Jacob and what happened uh, back in 1987. So, I'm going to go back a little bit further than 1987. Um, my mom and dad and I were living in Texas. Uh, I was born in New Mexico. My mom is from New Mexico. My whole family lives here. My dad is from Texas. He was a traveling evangelist, Pentecostal evangelist. So uh, if you've ever seen tent revivals where people are like speaking in tongues and doing all that kinds of crazy stuff, that was my dad. That's what he did. And so he had moved us to Texas because that's where I guess all of the preaching was. And, um, he was pretty neglectful to my mom and I, he would leave for weeks and weeks at a time. And my mom was unable to work because I was very young. So we were often left without money or food. And, um, I just remember my mom crying a lot. And at the same time, I'm really praying and hoping for a little brother and I keep bringing it up and probably annoying my parents about it. Um, But I'm just super, super excited. I want a sibling really bad. Um, My mom gets pregnant with Jacob. 
but her relationship with my father was really deteriorated by the time Jacob was born. And when Jacob was about three months old, we moved back to New Mexico and we left my dad in Texas. My mom wanted to be closer to family because she felt if she had that support, she could go to work and take care of us and she wouldn't have to worry. Um, And so we left. Meanwhile, uh, my dad's best friend is somebody who my family has known forever. He, his family, my family are very connected to each other. His father was a, a minister at a local church that my family went to. His, his father was a mentor to my dad. And, and there's so many other layers, like his aunt, his uh, aunt is my godmother. His sister is married to my mom's brother or was at the time. So I'm telling you all of this because I just, it's, it's important to know that my family knows this person. My mom went to school with him her whole life in church. So that's somebody that you would feel relatively confident that you know them. So he starts kind of coming around my mom and leveraging what he knows about my dad to further drive the wedge between them. At the same time, really uh, love bombing us, you know, just showering us with affection and attention and things that we were, we were starved for at the time. He seemed like a great person. He seemed like an answer to my mom's prayers. And so within a short amount of time, my mom and him start dating. And then shortly after that, they end up living together. And everything seems okay for a while. And I am completely uh, smitten by this person because I, he's everything that a little boy in the eighties likes, you know, he has a fast muscle car. He listens to really good music, really loud. He likes to eat candy all day long. Um, he let me stay up and watch Terminator when it first came out, you know, like the, just really cool. But at the same time, um, Jacob started to have really strange injuries on his body that were unexplainable. Um, and I'm not going to use the suspect's name because he hasn't been charged with anything yet. And I just don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, so I'll call him, I'll call him Joe for the sake of this. And Joe started to blame me for the injuries. He said things like I was jealous of Jacob and he saw me kick Jacob or he saw me hit Jacob. Um, and that's why Jacob had injuries. I don't really remember being jealous of Jacob. That doesn't mean that I couldn't have been. It's possible. It was a long time ago. I was very small. Um, but I don't remember specifically being jealous enough to hurt him. The only jealousy that I really remember is being jealous of his name. I thought he had a better name than me. And I was really mad about that. Um, (laughs) And my grandmother told me that my name meant princely. And then I was like, oh, cool. I'm good. My name's better than yours. We're good. Um, Jacob was the type of baby that was crazy. 
he had a huge personality for a little baby. He was fearless. He didn't like, he didn't care about anything scary. Like he loved crazy stuff. One of his favorite things to do was when he was in his baby swing is as it swung forward, he would reach forward and grab the front legs of the swing and throw the entire thing back on the ground. And he would lay there laughing. And so they eventually we had to stop putting him in it because it was dangerous, you know, but he thought it was the funniest thing that could ever happen. He would pull the uh, cabinets out of the kitchen or the drawers out of the kitchen cabinets and knives and forks and everything would be falling around him, making tons of noise. And he's just sitting there laughing. So I tell you that because his personality changed once we, we started living with Joe and he became very fearful. Uh, my grandmother one night tried to pick him up over her head like he always loved to do. That was one of his favorite things. And he started screaming and clawing at her hair and crying. Sorry. Um, my mom confronted Joe about that and asked him if, if he had been playing rough with Jacob. And he said, no, he said, all I do is this. And he picks Jacob up really high over his head. And Jacob is practically jumping out of his hands into my mom's arms, crying and screaming. And so my mom says, don't ever do that to him again. Don't ever play with him like that again. He doesn't like it. You need to stop. Meanwhile, I continually am being blamed for all these other weird things that have happened. Um, sunflower seed shells were found in Jacob's crib. He had a subdural hematoma that had to be lanced and drained. So my mom wasn't really sure what was happening. Um, you know, she knew this person her whole life. She didn't think he was capable of doing anything to Jacob. She wasn't sure if I was actually hurting Jacob, but she just didn't want the heat to be on me anymore. So she sent me to be with my dad and um, started to really limit how much time Jacob was alone with Joe. And if you need to interrupt me at any time, feel free. Cause I'm just like blabbing. No, here. this is but, great. Um, We're no, yeah, please keep, keep going okay. if it's comfortable. Yeah. No. It's yeah. Good. So I, I'm in California with my dad um, and the injuries to Jacob, they slowed down, but that's only because my mom was, was limiting his contact with Jacob. So, um, April 9th, 1987, my grandmother was watching Jacob and she wanted to go to church and Jacob had been fussy. He had an ear infection. He just wasn't feeling very good. So she didn't want to bring him because he wasn't feeling well and because he probably would have cried the whole time. So she called my mom at work. My mom worked at a grocery store and she, she said, Hey, I, I really want to go to church tonight. What do I do with Jacob? My mom said, well, you know, I get off in an hour. I guess you can take him to Joe. And she said, what's the worst that could happen in an hour? So, um, she started to have this really bad feeling that something was wrong. And she asked her boss to let her leave early. And he, he laughed her off and said, no, you know, go stock some shelves or something. And then it got busy. So she kind of took her mind off of her feelings. 
And at some point in that hour, I don't know how long it was, but uh, an ambulance, an ambulance drives by really fast with the lights on and the sirens on. And Joe comes running into the grocery store in a panic, telling my mom that Jacob is unconscious and he's being rushed to the hospital. My mom leaves and goes to the hospital. She doesn't know what's going on yet. Um, by the time they get there, Jacob is being loaded onto a care flight to uh, Albuquerque, which is about 75 miles north of Socorro, to the Trauma One Center because his injuries are so severe they can't treat him there. So my mom, my grandparents, and Joe are driving to Albuquerque. It's about an hour away. Um, they get to the, the hospital, and Jacob is being rushed into emergency brain surgery. He has a skull fracture, a subdural hematoma, and his brain is swelling. He um, he didn't make it through the surgery. And my mom, of course, freaked out, ran away crying when the doctor told her. And Joe is continuously saying, this doesn't look good for me. Um, I can't believe this is happening to me over and over again. And he says it so much that the doctor made a note uh, in, in Jacob's chart about it. He didn't have any concern at all for Jacob. And you know, I, I know people have different emotional responses to situations like that. You know, some people don't cry. Some people just get really quiet. Um, but the fact that he wasn't even concerned about Jacob or my mom was pretty telling. And also on the way up to Albuquerque, he kept saying, I swear I didn't hit him. I swear I didn't do this. I swear this didn't happen. Um, he told... I think a total of six or seven stories about how Jacob died and all of them are different. Um, one version was that he was dubbing cassette tapes. He set Jacob on the couch. Jacob fell off the couch while his back was turned, hit his head on the coffee table and then started to vomit. Another version is he was picking Jacob up. Jacob slipped out of his hands, hit his head on the, on the armchair. Another version was, for some reason, he said he was tickling Jacob's legs with his beard. And Jacob started to lose his balance and they headbutted each other. And that's how he got hurt. Um, I think there was like four or five more versions. I can't remember all of them. They are all extremely different. You know, nothing is the same. And none of them really match up with what the medical investigator, medical examiner's report said, which was that it was blunt force trauma that uh, was about the size of a man's open hand on the top of Jacob's head. So I flew back to New Mexico with my dad that night and was immediately taken into interrogation by the state police. And they were asking me if I had hurt Jacob, if I'd hit Jacob, if I was jealous of Jacob. 
Um, and, and before that happened, Joe pulled me aside and said, don't you lie. Don't you dare lie. You know what happens to people who lie. And, um, yeah, I told the police that I didn't, I didn't remember hitting Jacob, that I didn't hit Jacob. And they said, well, did Joe ever hit you? And I said, well, no, but he always acts like he's going to. There had been a anonymous, an anonymous um, call to Child Protective Services sometime in March of 1987. A neighbor had called and claimed that Joe was being physically abusive with Jacob. I don't know who the neighbor was or what they saw or what prompted them to call, but I just think it was interesting. Um, when the Child Protective Services investigator came to the house, Joe became very aggressive with her and started yelling at her. And so she left and then nothing happened. I don't know why my mom doesn't know what to believe uh, about what happened to Jacob. And they, and they asked her, the police asked her if she thought that Joe could be capable of hurting Jacob. And her response was, I don't think so because she didn't think so. N nobody thought he was capable of that. So we buried Jacob. We moved back in with my grandparents and I didn't really know what was happening. I didn't, I didn't really suspect Joe was responsible. I thought it was an accident until one day when um, Joe had been kind of harassing my mom, trying to get her to talk to him after Jacob died. And he, he was pretty, um, pretty tenacious about it. Like he would leave notes for her at work, you know, put notes on her car, have family members deliver letters to her. Um, I have a bunch of the letters a lot of them, he's asking my mom to go to Jacob's grave to talk to him, which I think is really weird. I don't understand why you would do that to a grieving mom. It's suspicious at, at, at the you know very least. But he pulls up in my grandparents' yard and my grandfather runs out of the house and he yells at him. He says, why don't you hit somebody who can talk? USOB. And it was in that moment that I realized that, that Joe might've had something to do with Jacob's death, something more nefarious. Um, somehow he weaseled his way back into my mom's life. And um, that's when it got really bad. He became extremely abusive physically to my mom, emotionally, mentally, and sexually to me. Um, it was three years of complete hell. And I didn't know if I was going to live through it. I didn't know if I was going to make it. But he also told me that if I ever told anybody what happened to me, including my mom, that he would kill me and my mom, and I believed him. So I didn't say anything. And I feel like my mom felt like if she was the only one being abused, then, then she could tolerate it. And I, I think maybe there was some level of 
of guilt, you know, for her because of what happened to Jacob. But um, we, we did finally get away because he was trying to groom my 14-year-old cousin. And my mom found out about it. And that really was like the fire that she needed to get away from him. And at that point, she goes to the police and, and now fully believes that he's capable of, of hurting Jacob because she's lived through you know, things like being told every single day that the only way you're going to leave is in a body bag and having a wire hanger wrapped around her neck until she lost consciousness. Like all of these things had happened over three years to really make her believe that he was fully capable of murder and abuse. And when she went to the police, they kind of treated her like she was a woman scorned who was just trying to get revenge on her poor husband. And the DA told her that they would not prosecute because um, she had given him an alibi. And what they mean by that is when they asked if she thought he was capable of hurting Jacob and she said, I don't think so. They considered that to be an alibi. Jesus Christ. Before you continue, that's been an incredible uh recalling of of the story that's one of the hardest stories i've ever listened to and i have no <laughs> i have an endless amount of respect for you i it's it's incredible that jesus uh I, I mean we talk about people who are survivors and then you hear from people who are survivors and it never ceases to astound me what people are capable of on both sides. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, I didn't really go all the way in um, because it is, it is a lot. So, you know, that's what I was talking about before mm -hmm. why I don't want to talk about it because it's hard for people to hear this. You know, one of the things that I've learned through my show and through advocating and the things that I've been doing is these kinds of situations are super common it seems like it's an outlier because it's crazy and it's violent and it's scary, but it isn't, you know, there are so many stories like this and we don't hear them because it, it sucks to talk about, you know, it hurts and, and it's shameful. There's a lot of shame that's tied into it. And so, and then it's also scary. You know, this person still lives in the same town my mom lives in. He still drives by her house. He has no reason to drive by her house, but he still does. So, you know, it's it's dangerous to be this vocal about things like this. So I understand why people don't talk about it, but I just feel like if more people talked about it, then it would people would understand how common it is. Yeah. Yeah, actually, while you're talking about it, it's it's obvious how hard it is, how almost impossible it is for you to to tell this story. Um, but I realized as you were talking about it, you you know you have to, you know, it, it's doing no good not talking about it, and you have to talk about it because you're not alone in it. There's, you know, this is not an incident where one person did this, did these horrible horrible things to his family. Uh, it's it happens all the time like that when when you said love bomb i mean that is like 
I, that's that's the the first sign when you're just like something's off here, and and then it escalates and escalates. And you use the word groom, like those words, love or term love bomb and word groom isn't a thing if this is just a one time thing. So that that is why you know one of the reasons why it's really important to talk about because this is happening out there to other people too. Yeah, and you said you said that people have a visceral reaction to it. It's true. You 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 do. You you have a you have a reaction to it. Jacob was nine months, nine months, nine months old. How how old were you? I was six, six years old. Um, you need to tell the stories. Like people out there who have this happen to them need to say this, and and you need to listen to them. Yeah, I, I'm a. You know, I actually kind of had to eat crow in season one of my of my show because I was talking to the mother of a, a homicide victim. He he was 15 years old and you know, brutally murdered. And we were talking about the need to change laws and the need to change the way things are done here. And I said, what you ignore, you permit. What you're silent about, you allow to continue. And then I felt like I had slapped myself in the face because I, I wasn't talking about it. And so I, I'm really good at holding the mirror in front of my face and being like, okay, like you just said that. So you have to actually do that because you can't just say things like that and expect other people to do it when you're not willing to. And I, and I get it. There's some people who, who, you know, it's hard for them and, and they're not ready. And, and I don't mean that to be an attack on those people, you know, if, and when you're ready to tell your story, then, you know, I encourage people to do it if they can, if they can't, you know, it doesn't mean anything other than, you know, it, it's okay. It's okay. But I can do something, you know, I, I can, I see a therapist <laughs> that helps tremendously. Um, I have the strength to do it. And so then I'll be the voice and, and maybe it'll inspire other people to also share their story. And it is uh, really incredible what that type of person has over his or her victims. And the reason why, a lot of people don't talk about it. You mentioned that like you felt shame, you felt shame and responsible and that's all fear-based and that's all like power-based from this person. And it's really interesting to hear you describe how after your brother's death, things escalated with your mom and with you, like, like he figured out how he, he figured it. It's almost like he, transitioned into a full monster and because he got away with it and i i have i can totally understand someone in your position saying i just don't want i don't even want it to exist anymore which is why they don't talk about it and it yeah if i i i Go on, because I'm, I'm now stuttering. <laughs> um, can you tell us about the panel that you hosted with uh, Dr. Jules and Dr. Ashley Wellman? Yeah, so um, that was on the heels of of the video I did with Kendall Ray, which 95% of the comments were very supportive and helpful. Uh, there was a small percentage that were very hurtful and... I couldn't help myself. I know better. I know not to go into the comment section. Like it's just not a good place to be on any video. It doesn't matter <laughs> what it is. The comment section is, is horrible, but I, 
I couldn't help it. And so I, I went in there and, and I was shocked by some of the things that people were saying. Somebody said, um, the only reason my mom left Joe was because he was hitting on my 14 year old cousin and she was jealous. Yeah. What possesses people to do that? Like physically type out that comment. It serves no purpose. It does the opposite. And and obviously, like, yeah, you're tempted to look at it. And and then you're t- you're even more tempted to respond because how dare you? You know, how dare you say something like that? I did get into some some comment fights. Um, I'm not going to lie, especially with that comment, because I it, I was respectful. But I, I said, look, you, first of all, have this completely wrong. Uh, a 30 year old man cannot hit on a 14 year old girl. That is called grooming. You know, just in the same way that an adult cannot have a sexual relationship with a child because that is called sexual abuse. Uh, and what you call it matters because it trivializes the abusive nature of it when you just say, oh, he's flirting with her. That's not what that is. And so I got defensive about that because I just felt like it was wrong. You know, that's not why my mom left. My mom left because her niece was in danger and she was protecting her. And had she known what was happening to me, she would have left. I fully believe that. Um, but it's also, you know, there was a lot of victim blaming. A lot of, you know, people saying that my mom, you know, she caused Jacob's death because she went back to to this guy. And uh, a lot of people who just don't understand the psychology of what it what it means to be the victim of a narcissistic abuser. And so, Dr. Jules and Dr. Wellman are both brilliant women, um, super smart and they know all about this stuff. And so I, I asked them if they would come and talk on my uh, Facebook channel, my YouTube channel about victim blaming and about the impact of narcissistic abusers and what that looks like and why it's so difficult to leave. And I was so grateful for them. They did a phenomenal job. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Well done with that, uh, as well. That was really, uh, also great awareness to uh, to spread. So what's your goal now? So uh, so you've you've covered Jacob's case a bit on on your podcast. You've really do, you've done the 10 days of Jacob that got shortened to five um, because of the call uh, from the DA. So what uh, what is your goal now? Well, it's still it's still justice for Jacob. Um, you know, I can tell you that the DA's response doesn't mean that I'm finished fighting for justice because we're not, we're not there yet. I'm still going to continue that. I'm going to continue advocating for other families. My next goal is, is pretty big in the sense that I am going to start a nonprofit organization that's focused on justice for family victims in New Mexico. It's going to have three arms, advocacy and education and lobbying for legislation. Awesome. That's that's fantastic. And if you need any help, let us know. Getting the word out or or anything, we're happy to help because um, that is a truly noble endeavor and <laughs> daunting yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're happy to help any way we can. There's a there's an article uh, on Medium dot com about your story, and I don't know how many people are aware that the individual in in question, the one that you're speaking of confessed to Jacob's murder and I don't know what those details are can you 
<laughs> and you and I don't know if you know what. So how how did this come about? Yeah. So there's a lot of problems with the investigation. Um, we didn't know that he confessed until much later. So my mom was basically told that they weren't going to do anything in 1991 when she left him. Uh, he was arrested for one night and then he was let go. There's no record of that. It doesn't exist. So um, I remember that it happened, but there's no record that that even ever happened. Even though I do have the warrant, I have a copy of it. The court doesn't have a copy of it. Um, the DA doesn't have that. So I don't know. Weird. Um, <laughs> well, that's so confusing. Yeah, I'm sorry. Did So he wasn't actually charged with anything? He was arrested for what, though? It was around the same time my mom asked for them to press charges against him. So I don't, I don't know. I don't okay, know. Okay, so they... They didn't. They felt like they didn't have enough to charge him at the time. I guess. I it's it's going to get more confusing. Mm. I hate to tell you. Um, so it's important to know that he was really, really good friends with the police force. They played basketball every weekend, so they all knew each other. Every time my mom would call the cops, or the cops would be called because they were fighting so loud, um, they would just believe whatever he said and they would leave because they were his friends. Um, he worked for the county. He had the keys to every county uh, every county office, including the DA's office. He had access to everything. So I'm not saying that he did anything or that the police did anything. I'm just putting that out there and people can think for themselves, you know, because I, I don't know what happened, but I do know that there's a lot of weird, suspicious stuff like that. Um, in 1987, in July, he was taken in for a polygraph, which I know are not reliable, but I think it's pretty telling when you look at everything else. Um, so we went with him and he told us that he passed it. And in the eighties, I think that it was easy to believe him because he walked out of there. And so we thought that if he would have failed it, they would have kept him, right? Like that just seemed logical back then. Um, he said he passed. So in, after 1991, my mom and I kind of felt like the air was let out of the balloon and there was really nowhere for us to go and nothing for us to do. So we kind of gave up. And then in 2005, we started noticing things were changing in the state and there was a big push for child abuse legislation and a big push for um, preventing child murder. And um, they even overturned in the early two thousands, the statute of limitations on second degree murder, which existed here uh, up until, up until that point, uh, it was six years. So you had six years to file charges on second degree murder uh, or else they just get away with it. And that was actually used as a means to not prosecute, you know, that, that um, statute of limitations for Jacob's case. So my mom learning about all this went to the state police and said, Hey, can you guys reopen my son's case? I'm just, I'm hoping that you can look at it. And they did a thorough investigation. Um, Sergeant Thomas Christian did a phenomenal job. The case file that I have is the one that he created and he dug deep. He looked at everything. 
And that's when we learned that Joe had confessed to Jacob's murder. Uh, we also learned that he failed the polygraph. We don't know what he confessed to. We don't know the circumstances around his confession because even though it says in the case file that he confessed, and, and I think the exact wording was one of the lieutenants came into the captain's office and said, we don't need to administer a polygraph because he confessed. That's it. That's the line. But there's no transcript. There's no recording. There's no notes. There's nothing at all that indicates what was said. And he is not in jail for it. Right. A confession, a failed polygraph, uh, indications that your brother was struck with blunt force trauma by what looked like a human male's hand. A history of violence, and he still is living as a free human being? Free to abuse more people. You're right. It got com more confusing. I'm, I'm confused how that is a thing. Yeah, it's been... It's almost like being gaslit by the authorities in a lot of ways. You know, my mom and I are here in like this pile of smoldering ashes of our lives and asking people to help us and basically being ignored. And then, you know, you start to question your own sanity. Like, did I make all this up? You know, is this just in my head? Am I, am I insane? Like, why am I the only one that cares about this? It doesn't make any sense. It's a battle. I'm, I mean, you're, you're literally fighting a battle. It's incredible that it's incredible that like you even have to consider that you're being gaslit by the police. Was there any insight uh, you learned recently? And um, is there, is there any push for justice for Jacob? So I did learn that the statute of limitations was overturned. And I also learned that there was a Supreme court case here in New Mexico um, where there was a victim who was murdered and the statute of limitations had passed. And because of that, the court in that district refused to hear the case. So the victim's family appealed that decision to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in their favor. They ruled that because the statute of limitations had been overturned, that it would pro or retroactively apply to old cases. And so that opens the door for the potential of charges being brought. After experiencing what you went through, what's your outlook on your own family? How, how, how do you communicate with your husband? And, and are, you, are you planning on having children? Are you planning on expanding? So I do have a 15-year-old son. Um, it, you know, I think that this experience has has pervaded every aspect of my life and it affects me in weird ways that that i wouldn't expect i guess um and ways that i guess i would expect but you know there's there's a lot of 
PTSD and anxiety and all this stuff that I have to deal with on a daily basis. But one of the things, good, bad, or indifferent, I've, I'm super protective parent. You know, I, I'm overprotective and my son, he probably hates it, but I, I'm just, it's my worst fear that he would be subject to anything close to what I went through as a child. So I'm very careful about, you know, who, whose house he goes to or, um, anything really. And I guess it's good. I don't know. It's probably too much. It's probably overkill. I know he doesn't like it, but it's just really hard for me to not be that way. And I've always been that way. My family, you know, my life is, is peaceful. It's calm and stable. I I work very hard to, to create that environment in my home so that my son can grow up in, in a healthy, loving, supportive environment. Even if I am being overprotective, um, it's just really important to me. You know, my relationship with my husband is just like a normal relationship, you know, but I do have, I do have all my weird PTSD and stuff that I have to deal with that is, is not easy all the time because, you know, sometimes I, I react to things, not even aware of why I'm reacting the way I'm reacting. I, I don't know if that answers. I'm rambling now. <laughs> oh no, that, that absolutely answers it. And it was a great answer. And it is a message for people again, like, we're talking to somebody who has been through literally hell, has been through this and has seen the damage and the destruction and the chaos. And and it's not over. I, that, I think that's my point. It's like life is not over. Life is something that you fight for and, and you make something work. And yes, you have PTSD from from this horrible experience and and it'll it'll always be there but you said you go to therapy you you have a calm life you have a, a good structure a strong structure and one day your son will will probably appreciate how strict you are but you know the alternative is is not what you want uh, you know that you need to keep the structure and being a little strict is fine and and i imagine that they they will your son will come around and and be you know cool with that um but good for you good for you for 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 being who you are and, and, and sticking it through. And you said tomorrow is the, is the anniversary of Jacob's death. I mean, spend that like just be with your family and I don't, you don't need me, someone in in Massachusetts to tell you what to do, but I'd like to imagine that you just surround yourself with people you love. You're not my real dad, Lance. <laughs> That's exactly how I thought this conversation was going to end. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you to so much. Most of the, these interviews end. <laughs> Eric, this has been uh, an amazing uh, conversation with you. Uh, as Lance noted earlier, this has been uh, one of the most compelling uh, sort of retellings of a story I think uh, that I've ever been witness to. And I, um, you know, in a conversation. So, uh, thank you for that. I, I, I'm sure our listeners feel the same way if they haven't already heard, uh, about Jacob's story. Um, and w- what should they do? Where can they find you? What, what can they do? Yeah. Thank you. First of all, to both of you for, for allowing me to borrow your platform for this. Uh, it means a lot and, and I'm very grateful for this. So thank you. So you can find more information 
at trueconsequences.com. Um, you can find me on social media. There is a petition for uh, the case to be reopened. So if you feel inclined to, to sign that, that would be helpful. Um, sharing Jacob's story helps because you know, it's not a famous case. It's becoming more known now, um, but it, it for the longest time was not known. It didn't even make the local news when it happened. So um, sharing Jacob's story helps tremendously because the more people that are aware of it, the less likely the authorities are to ignore it. And, and that kind of goes back to the beginning where we were talking about the pressure part of it. You know, you have to make it politically unpopular for some of these elected officials to ignore you. And the way to do that is to get the story out there. And the more the story is out there, the less likely they are to ignore you because they can't. Because everybody knows now and they can't hide and pretend like it's not happening. It works.